In this episode, Ron Moen and Cliff Norman discuss the evolution of Dr. Deming's 14 points, system of profound knowledge, and his learning. Hi, I'm Trip Babbitt, host of the Deming Institute podcast. Our guests today are Ron Moen and Cliff Norman of Associates in Process Improvement. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, bud. Can you share a little bit about uh, API? and what you do. Okay, I'll start. This is Ron. Um, API started in 1985. Uh, three of us, Tom Nolan, Lloyd Provost, and myself, worked together in Department of Agriculture. So we uh, left USDA and um, started our organization. We were doing a lot of work with uh, epidemic seminars. So we started, and then we joined, We had three more members join in 1987 and 88. That would be... Uh, uh, with Norman, who's on the call with us today, and Kevin Nolan and Jerry Langley. And uh, we've basically been together now 30, nearly 30 years. Uh, we just had a little celebration for 30 years. So, Congratulations. Uh, we're really a, Cliff, any comments about the API? Yeah, I just think the organization's sort of interesting. We, we don't really uh, exist as a business Trip. We exist literally as a learning organization. Uh, my wife, Jane, uh, when we're asked by clients, can you give an example of a learning organization? She always gives API because we exist to do research and writing together. And as uh, improvement advisors and consultants, as, if we run out of knowledge, uh, we run out of work. And so it's been a, an organization that exists to cooperate and learning. A uh, great example of a learning organization. Okay, great. Great. I appreciate it. So, how did you both come across the uh, Deming philosophy, Ron? I've, I'm, as I mentioned earlier in, in a conversation, um, yeah, I'm familiar with you from the Reckoning and a number of the books, uh, even out of the crisis. You're mentioned in there a couple of times. So, starting with you, uh, how did this all develop with you and, and Dr. Deming? Uh, for me, it was um, graduate school at the University of Missouri. I uh, went to a American Statistical Association meeting in Montreal in 1971. Deming was there and I was in the audience and he, uh, there was probably a hundred statisticians and he made every one of them mad because <laughs> his topic was on uh, analytic studies. Mm. Uh, and this is really a very important message uh, that is carried throughout his lifetime, this enumerative versus analytic. Mm -hmm. And statisticians uh, never really got it. They, they thought that he was uh, doing away with their profession. And their theory is correct for enumerative problems, but it's not correct for analytic. So I just spent four years in graduate school learning the theory behind enumerative studies. My advisor was in Montreal. And, I, and I, he said, well, how do you like working in the real world? I said, where's the population? There's no population. <laughs> the world's very dynamic, and enumerative problems are not appropriate. Statistics works for enumerative, but the problems that we worked on are analytic. And so that was kind of the whole starting point. I also worked with him in the ASTM E11 committee, it was called, in Philadelphia. He was a member of that. I was a member of that in 1973. I took his classes at George Washington University in 79 and 80. And from 1980 forward, it was the NBC white paper, the four-day seminars, and so on and so forth. So uh, 
that was that was my start. So that's interesting. And Cliff, yeah. how did you come across the Deming philosophy? I was uh, working at uh, Otis Engineering, and uh, we had started uh, to try to worry a little bit about improvement. Otis Engineering is part of Halliburton. And uh, my CEO, uh, Mr. Purvis Thrash, he asked me uh, to go to the Deming Seminar and take along our R&D manager. This is in 1981. And I was in an elevator. Dr. Deming got on. Two ladies were uh, guiding him in. And uh, he looked at me and saw my George Washington uh, University badge. And he came over and he read it. (laughs) And then he backed away from me and he said, Mr. Norman, what I'm getting ready to tell you today will haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, that, that's actually come true. And then the second thing he said to me, as young as you are, uh, at the time I was 29, he's, as young as you are, if, uh, if you're working for somebody and you're not learning from them, you ought to think about getting a new boss. <laughs> and, uh, wow, that's, that's extremely profound. And um, throughout the seminar, I was... Uh, uh, had a lot of dissonance because a lot of the things I w- was taught, he was challenging. So, for example, sampling plans, which as a quality engineer, I'd set up lots of sampling plans for 10 years prior to that. And uh, he got me up in front of 500 people at Crystal City, and uh, he said, where'd you learn this? I said, I thought God created this. He said, no, I know the people who did it. They did it to put people like you out of business. Time to learn something new. Sit down. You know? And then, <laughs> So the, the whole week was uh, tough, and I, and, I, and I had a strong appreciation for the next few seminars I went to why people would get up. Some of them would get up and leave. Uh, and, you know, a good example of that was uh, Dr. Donald Berwick, who John and uh, Ron and I both have the privilege to work with. And he said after the first few hours, he got up and left and flew back to Boston. And he said he was laying there in his bed that night, and he's thinking, you know, I need to go back. And something was really bothered. He said he was glad he did. But, you know, Deming put him off so badly that uh, he just got up and left. And, you know, early on we saw we saw that as we watched people, you know, say, I can't stand any more of this and get up and leave. But the people who stayed, truly, it changed their thinking, and it certainly did it for me. So one of the things we dive into uh, in the conversation with, with you guys is this uh, system of profound knowledge. And even starting back after or, or even before, during World War II, and Dr. Deming's already been and, and met with Walter Schuhart and worked with him at the Western Electric Plant. And in 1942, I believe he, he stepped up with uh, Stanford University and started doing a number of seminars and things of that sort. Can you kind of take me from there about how this evolution has started? Because everybody talks about the 14 points and the system profound knowledge, and maybe even during the conversation we can talk about, you know, what is the difference between those two? Or is there a difference? So uh, Cliff and I uh, tackled this problem uh, back in January of this year. And because we felt there was such a misunderstanding and that whatever Deming said was uh, permanent. And in fact, uh, this paper really shows the evolution of Deming's learning. It really, uh, you know, it, I think it does a good job of that. So we have just submitted this paper to Quality Progress for American Society of Quality, and it'll be published next spring, we think. They don't have a date yet. So that's what we'd like to talk about. Um, And I think the overall message is that, yes, he started with Schuhart's ideas. And what year was that when he first met Schuhart, Cliff? 
1927, fall of 1927, a fellow by the name of Huntsman introduced Deming to Shoehart. So then what we're going to, what we did in this paper was we, we sort of took it into three parts so before 1980, 1980 to 1988, and then 1989 to 1993. And, and again, Deming's learning was tremendous uh, through that span of time. And But it was Shuhart's ideas applied to the, uh, to a Stanford University eight-day course on SQC or statistical quality control for the for World War II, Stanford University put together this course. Deming taught it 22 times. So Deming started by teaching SQC, which basically is the understanding variation part and the understanding of uh, separation of common and special causes that he learned from Schuhart. Uh, so that was the course in 1942. And then we move forward to 1950 after World War II, where he took that same course and taught it to the Japanese. He was invited to teach the Japanese. So it was another eight-day course. What was different, and we bring out in the paper, was there were managers there. It wasn't just all quality control people. It was managers. So his message sort of changed to how do managers deal with uh, uh, understanding variation. And, and so there was an emphasis on management. And several of the courses were a lot of managers in, uh, in the sessions in 1950. Uh, so that kind of was the beginning of a message for management. Then in the paper, we talk about moving up through the 70s to 1980. And of course, the big milestone there was the NBC white paper, If Japan Can, Why Can't We? Uh, which I think did change Deming's life. He didn't admit that. But uh, from there on, then it was a message for management. And so uh, it was uh, his four-day seminars were starting then in 1980, 1981, 82. Uh, he started saying these are things you should do and should not do. Those evolved into the 14 points, which several of those points came from an HP seminar in 1980, was it, Cliff? Yeah, I believe that's I think, correct. Yep. Yeah, they took notes on his uh, seminar uh, with HP. He uh, he saw the notes and he said, I like these ideas. There were 10 ideas and he uh, took those 10 and added four more. That was the beginning of the 14 points, things to do and not do. Stop doing these, start doing these. Uh, shortly thereafter, there were four more. It was 14 points. That became the basis of the 14 points. Uh, they changed almost monthly in 1980, 81, 82, putting less and less emphasis on statistics and more and more emphasis on what managers should be doing and not doing. Let me ask you a question, yeah, Ron. I just a couple of points of clarification. So in 1950, when they had SQC for management, that was uh, Japanese management, correct? correct. More, more focused? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, then, yes. and then in 1980, with the white paper and the 14 points, were the 14 points then uh, more aimed at U.S. management? Would that be fair to say? Or Western management? I would say yes, uh, I, I, because the origin uh, was his seminar with HP, and that very much was a, a Western or, or American audience. Okay. Um, I think he actually says that, uh, trip in his book, Out of the Crisis. And I remember in the seminars that I went to, he would always have an asterisk next to the 14 points, and then he'd say for the transformation of the Western style of management. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that message was entirely aimed at uh, Western management. He never taught the 14 points uh, to the Japanese. In fact, uh, Ron 
uh, as part of our uh, collusion with the Japanese Union of Scientists and Engineers. We've been working with them for a number of years through uh, API. And uh, Dr. Kano looked at those 14 points, and uh, he said it, it seems that Dr. Deming's uh, proposing a humanistic philosophy for the 21st century. It's, it's, they really didn't recognize the 14 points, even now. Okay. Uh, uh, sorry about that, Ron. I just wanted to kind of get some clarification on things yeah. for, the, for the audience. So pick it up from the, the development of the 14 points then. So with, along with the 14 points, he started uh, developing the, the deadly diseases, which is sort of summaries from the 14 points. But he had seven deadly diseases uh, for Western management, five of which were for Western management. The last two, he said, are peculiar to industry in the U.S. And that was number six was excessive medical costs. And the, number seven was the excessive cost of liability swelled by lawyers that work on contingency fees. So those were for U.S. specific, uh, but the rest were all for Western management. So he stayed with that for a while, but then I think the questions kept coming: uh, Where do these come from? How do you how do we know these are correct? Or, you know, we should start doing these things. What's the theory behind that? And that sort of evolved then in our paper to talk about this. Um, um, Osaka paper, which was really what's behind the 14 points, and that was 1989, where he talked about profound knowledge, and he said, these, really, you need to know these things, and he ended up with a list of about uh, 15 uh, different elements, uh, what is profound knowledge, so he had a list of 15, and that was 1989, 1990, and these were presented in his, in his four-day seminar as a handout, uh, and then it was... Um, in 1989 or 1990, University of Minnesota had a, a, a um, two-day workshop, and one of the talks was by three professors, and they took those 15 and they grouped them into, I think it was six categories. And Deming did not attend that session, but uh, he did see the the paper, and uh, the next month there was uh, it was down to four, and that was the four parts of profound knowledge. Those then became 1990-91, and then he changed them slightly. Uh, and then it, along uh, in the seminars, he continued to talk about a system of profound knowledge and almost exclusively avoided talking about the 14 points. So it was all about the system of profound knowledge, then, which became uh, you know, his 1993 book. So that's kind of the evolution of it. Um, so from the research that you guys have done, have you come to the opinion then that the 14 points aren't valid anymore? Are, are they something that's been supplanted by a system of profound knowledge? I'll give you my opinion, Cliff, you can give us yours. But I, I think the 14 points are do's and don'ts. People understand them. Stop, and, and there are things that you can just stop doing. There's not always some things you have to do. So I think they were popular. I think... In hindsight, the system of profound knowledge became too abstract because it's a theory. It's a theory behind the 14 points. Hmm. But for most people, it was too abstract for them to take the system of profound knowledge and to change their behavior, change their actions. So I think it was a harder sell when they switched to the system of profound knowledge. Yeah, I, Ron pulled out of his notes, as he usually does. He has a wealth of information with personal correspondence with Dr. Deming. And uh, one of the handouts that Ron produced that we put into the paper uh, trip was the first version 
That was the 14 points in early 1982. Mm. And uh, we contrast that in our article with the version that came out in 1986 and out of the crisis. And I guess what disturbed me is I went back and I looked at the list from 1982. It was far more uh, descriptive and more useful. Uh, and I actually was working with a client who was learning about 14 points at the time. And uh, they looked at these and they said, Cliff, this, this, this is far better. Uh, what we've done in 86 looks like we've watered these things down. And uh, so I think people will see that in the paper. I, I was just very profoundly struck with how uh, the 82 version, in my mind, was uh, more useful than what ultimately was, was published. The other thing here, and I think, I think Deming started to appreciate this, uh, when he started out with the 14 points, he was playing to the social character of the American culture, which just tells what to go do. Uh, give mm. us a silver bullet, mm. we'll go take care of that, and as opposed to really understanding the underlying theory. I think if Deming had been teaching in England, they would have demanded the theory right off the bat. And uh, unfortunately, we've, we have a tendency to feed people with things to go do. That's why when you re read blogs, the most important blogs on websites are seven things for this and ten things to take care of that. And uh, they actually tell people if you label your blog as such, people will read it, mm -hmm. you know, because they're attracted <laughs> things to go do. So I think Deming listened to his own message about the importance of theory and moved into the system of profound knowledge. Ron, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And of course, in the new economics, that's introduced in chapters three and four. But he did, he, he really didn't talk about the 14 points other than they follow naturally from my system of profound knowledge. But what he did do in chapter two was these are the heavy losses. So he talks in the new economics chapter two, some faulty practices of management with suggestions for better practice. So he has a two columns, present practice, uh, and then better practice. And then the reasons why really dig deeper into this is a system of profound knowledge. So he kind of, he's backed off on the 14 points, but I think his substitute to get ordinary people to understand it is, here are present practices, here are better practices, and these are my reasons why in chapter two. And then introducing the system of profound knowledge in chapters three and four. So whether or not it's the right thing, I don't know, but I think most people... Uh, have trouble with just applying some of the profound knowledge directly. Mm, yes. Uh, and one thing I want to ask Cliff about that you brought up there, you said the 1982 version of the 14 points uh, brought greater clarity. I'm going to use my words, not yours, sorry, to the ones that came out later. Can you give me an example or, or a couple of examples? Yeah, just uh, consider point number five, which is improved constantly forever, the system of production and service. That's what was published. In 86, if you look at the 82 version, it says use statistical techniques to identify the two sources of waste. Systems 85% local faults, 15%. You know, strive constantly reduce this waste. <laughs> that's mm. that's pretty specific. What to go do? We have a whole industry, cottage industry of consultants that now call that lean trip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, of course, this all goes back to Deming's idea of the theory of variation, and that's how he entered uh, the system of profound knowledge was through that window of understanding variation from Schuhart's ideas. And from that, he found out that if I have common cause variation, I need to understand the system. 
And in order to understand the system, I need to engage these people. Therefore, I need to understand uh, the underlying driving needs of these folks and the psychology behind that. And in order to actually do this in a way that makes sense, I need to use the scientific method with addition of ACT, which became PDSA. So I need to understand how I'm going to develop tests and implement changes. And so it was through the window of variation that Deming discovered the other three parts mm-hmm. of profound knowledge. And it's always interesting to me that when I hang around people who have expertise mm-hmm. in the systems area, for example, they don't get back to variation. Mm-hmm. People in psychology who have been uh, lucky to work with, uh, they don't get back to variation. And the people who understand epistemology and theory of knowledge, they don't get back to understanding their swing common and special cause variation. So the variation window is huge leverage. <clears throat> I'm going to say the greatest contribution is putting those four parts together. Uh, again, there's great thinkers in each of those four, but what Deming did is put them together as a system, and it's the interaction of the four parts that provide the profound knowledge. He did that. No one else did that. Uh, it, 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 you know, I think that's his greatest contribution, which, again, makes it more abstract because how do you look at all four of those parts at the same time? Mm. That's been the difficulty. Sure. Uh, you know, they're, 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 all four of them are deep example. enough. Yeah. Trip, to give you another example, mm-hmm. uh, point number nine came out, breakdown barriers between staff areas. And as API worked with our clients coming out of the Deming four-day seminars, we didn't quite know how to go do that. So we went back to Dr. Deming's production viewed as a system, <laughs> and we said, well, if we switch from the organizational chart to actually understand the organization viewed as a system, we can start to break down those barriers. And so out of that, what we call the linkage of processes, which has been a very valuable method for us. But Deming actually, in the 82 version, he wrote this. He said, reduce waste by putting together as a team the people that work on design, research, sales, and production. If people had heard that message, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be out walking around saying, how do we break down barriers between departments? He told them in 1982 exactly what to go do. And it's interesting that uh, Chrysler, I think, Ron, correct me on this, but they actually put together a research center and a, a design center that actually did what Dr. Deming's talking about in point number nine. Mm-hmm. So, so, again, the overall method is Deming's method changed yearly, monthly. And, you know, some, some people come up to a seminar and say, well, you said this last month. <laughs> I have it, I have it on, on tape. And his answer was, uh, I make no apologies for learning. Now you have this on tape. (laughs) And that's what we're trying to do in this paper. This paper really just shows how his journey of learning, and in fact, I think his gift to us is that the system of profound knowledge is our own journey for learning. Uh, And if nothing else, it's it's really how how to learn um, by using that lens. So, so let's let's talk about that a little bit from your application of SOPK, and, and you've just set, kind of laid the table for uh, Dr. Deming, you know, advanced his learning, and SOPK is out there to advance everyone's learning. What have you learned? The system of profound knowledge causes us uh, within API uh, to operate better as a consulting group for the simple reason that we all use the same deck of theory when we look at things. Uh, we were, I was once confronted by a client in the construction industry, and uh, they told me that uh, Lloyd was in a week before, and uh, they told me what Lloyd had said. And I said, there's no way Lloyd said that. And they said, well, what are you talking about? I said, there's no way he could possibly make that statement. 
And uh, the guy sitting across from the CEO, he said, how long did that take? He said, about 15 seconds. And they started laughing. And, I, and they said, Cliff, how did you know Lloyd didn't say that? I said, because Lloyd couldn't possibly think that way. It doesn't match his theory that mm-hmm. he uses. And I know the theory he uses. And they started laughing again. They said, well, you know, we had a big uh, consulting firm in here last week, and we tested that on their consultant, and they immediately switched. <laughs> and I said, that's because they have a deck of theory. They're just they're trying to be in the moment, and they're trying to satisfy you. And I'm <clears throat> not interested in that. We're actually interested in helping you learn. And so that's been a profound impact on API as we work together. I, I can follow Ron easily because I know what Ron's going to – if, if he talks about something, he makes a statement, he's coming off that, those four streams of theory. And if I hear something that doesn't match, then I know that he didn't say that. Deming's very much like that, too. When I hear people quote Deming, and I hear something that's counter uh, to the theory of variation, for example, or what he would say about psychology, I know that that didn't happen because they just don't wander around too much from that deck of theory. Ron? Well, again, I think the word theory was is uh, scary to most people, but I, I think what Deming did for me personally is that theory was not scary, that it's really how we learn. And uh, so that, that maybe I needed a better understanding of theory of knowledge, but this idea of making predictions and testing those predictions. And uh, so it, it was really, it was, it created a real uh, powerful message for learning about the world I live in. So. And in general, his his models was just he learns every day, and I think just that in the seminars helped everybody walk away saying that uh, created. I think he called it a yearning for learning. And so for most people, they didn't learn that in school; they learned it in Deming seminars. Create a, a lifelong learning for a yearning for learning. It's a really powerful message. Uh, I think the other part of I think this is really important. I once had a, a manager on a seminar ask me, he said, Cliff, this all seems like common sense. Why isn't everybody doing this? And as we went through the, the, the workshop together, about every 20 minutes, this guy would say, you know, Cliff, this is hard. You know, really learning about this idea of variation is hard. And by the end of the, the two days together, he said, I, I think I answered my own question. You know, this requires some study. This requires some thought. This is not something you just go to a two-day seminar and then you're all finished. This is a lifelong learning idea, and this is difficult. And I, I think that's part of the reason that people don't embrace Deming right away, because it does require some study and some work. Okay, and let's let's follow that line of thinking. Just from a, you guys have worked in a variety of industries, you know, applying a system of profound knowledge, and and uh, so so. From that, what are the hardest things for people to grasp? Does it vary by industry, or is it kind of there's just certain things that that are very difficult for uh, your clients to to take hold of? Well, what's common to all industries is there's usually a management structure. And again, this is a theory for management. So it's easy to see the style of management in these organizations with the lens of profound knowledge because it's designed to uh, bring out some of these practices of managers that are uh, faulty. So it doesn't make any difference what industry is. As I look at education or government or industry, the style of management in the West and a lot of other uh, Eastern countries, a lot of the 
I've done a lot of traveling in the East, and, and Western practices are becoming more popular, for example, in India mm. and other countries. It's approached Asia as well it, because they're popular. They're easy. They think it's what they should do. Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't make any difference what industry. So whatever industry you're in, you need to say, well, how are we managing our people? So looking at it through the lens, for example, are they ranking people? And why are they ranking people? What are they doing? What's the reward system there? Um, so it doesn't make any difference what industry in. And I see just as much in government uh, and education, the ranking of teachers, the ranking of students, uh, ranking of schools, all of this ranking is, is a deadly disease. Uh, one of the deadly diseases from 1986, that's even more common today. So mm -hmm. these faulty practices are very common across all industries. So, so we haven't heeded Dr. Deming's warning about uh, exporting our dysfunctional management philosophy to uh, Eastern nations then, huh? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cliff, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I'll just walk around the system of profound knowledge with examples. Under, under variation, rather than really understand the difference between common and special cause variation as we're looking at uh, measures and looking at measures over time, you know, with run charts or control charts. Uh, we now have a whole industry of consultants that are out teaching dashboards that compare this month's measure with some goal, and then they paint it red, green, or yellow with absolutely no understanding of whether this measure is suffering from special or common cause variation. Uh, we have lots of examples where fundamentally the technique puts management to sleep, and they're missing opportunities to actually learn from the data. Uh, because of these so-called dashboards. Uh, switching the organization from focusing on the organizational chart to really understand the organization as a system, that's a huge leap in understanding. Unfortunately, uh, without the method of understanding the organization viewed as a system that Deming gave us the concept for, people don't get there. So the system is never under suspicion, which leads right to psychology. So when things go wrong, people start to work on each other instead of the system. That's mm -hmm. just uh, the attribution error that Deming talked about. And under yeah. theory of knowledge, rather than being able to pose a good inquiry question that leads us to where our ignorance is, we now have lists of tools for people to use under some alphabet soup. You know, use this mm -hmm. tool, then that tool, and use another tool. And really being able to pose a good question that leads us uh, on a uh, task where we can get the data that's going to answer that question and only use uh, the proper tools uh, that help us answer that question. Uh, that should be considered the first lean principle. Only use the tools that are necessary to answer a good inquiry-based question, which underlies the theory of knowledge. Let me ask, let me ask you guys a, qu a question that, that, you, that you just brought up. Are you shocked by the number of organizations that you walk into that do not use statistical process control in any form? Well, to win the Deming Prize, uh, which uh, I think there's been 18 uh, companies in India that won the Deming Prize, uh, part of the Deming Prize is the use of use of uh, Shuart control charts. So if you, if you win the Deming Prize, you have to practice it. Where do I see it outside of that? Um, not as common. Okay. Not as common. I think a lot of people are getting away from that, uh, the use of Shuart charts. Uh, and again, the importance of separating the common cause and special cause, I, I think that's, I, I don't know, I, I think it is going away. Hmm. Um, 
but it shouldn't. It's one of the parts of profound knowledge, and it's critical. Is that what is my basis for action? Do I work on the system? Do I work on special causes? One of which might be on individuals or people. But to blame, always blame people for faults of the system is totally wrong. And this will help you separate that. And so, I, I think Deming said in quite a few of his seminars that uh, it'll take a hundred years for people to appreciate the contributions of. Walter Schuhart, uh, and I think that's true. And I, I think my we had an API meeting uh, two weeks ago, and we're still, I think we're still starting to appreciate the power of that statement Deming made. We're still learning to understand variation. Interesting. So I think that's something that we really need to bring, really emphasize to bring back. But it's one of four parts. Okay, very good. Cliff, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, I, I just uh, I think one of the most frustrating things to me, Trip, is to watch people uh, who are out uh, teaching, and uh, they really haven't grasped that idea that Deming uh, warned us about the difference between enumerative and analytic studies. And so we have a whole bunch of folks out right now that heard, oh, we need to teach statistical techniques. So they went back and they got the book on statistical techniques, and so now we're out teaching hypothesis testing and all the rest of it. And the underlying assumptions of all those tests is that the data is going to be uh, independent and identically distributed, uh, so-called IID. And so if those assumptions are there, then we can go use F-test, T-test, and all the rest of it. Unfortunately, as Shuhart warned us, that uh, processes in nature are inherently stable and man-made processes are inherently unstable. So if we have special causes present, it destroys all those assumptions. So you would think that by now, if I went to a computer program like Minitab, rather than get a histogram and a distribution of data, the first thing it would ask me to do is to plot my data on a run chart or control chart to see if I have special causes present, because from a man-made process, the chances of that are pretty good, and then learn from the special causes. And if, if people understood that one basic idea, we'd be a lot further down the road than we are right now. And unfortunately, when people hear statistical process control, they actually think that you only use the control chart once something's implemented. They don't understand that we have to make sure that the data going into the models that we're using is in a state of statistical control before we can start using more sophisticated, uh, so-called sophisticated techniques. Although I would offer if somebody has done the work of putting their work on a control chart, they're learning probably most of what they need to learn about a process. Uh, my last question for you guys is, is there anything that you wish I would have asked that you'd like to expound upon, or uh, is there any clarification of anything you have said? If Deming were alive today, would this be the same message? And I would say no. His uh, system of profound knowledge would be very, probably very different. You have different emphasis on it. And uh, the last thing he'd want us to do is to uh, lock into his system of profound knowledge that using those four parts. I think those need to evolve. They can be individual. People can see them differently, uh, and I think that's okay. Uh, as long as we, I, I, I do think the four parts together, which is kind of like a liberal arts degree, you have to have some knowledge in all these things. I think that's important, but the specifics, which were locked in when he died and when he published in 1993, I think he, those would be very different if he uh, continued to live. So I think that's the legacy he would like to leave us is that we need to keep adding to that and a better understanding and and um, uh, continue to develop the you know, system of profound knowledge and the application of it. Cliff? Yeah, I, I think Ron's hit it right on the head. I, I don't think Deming would want us to be historians and uh, worship what he did. He would want us to start building on that. 
And uh, one of the things that, uh, that I particularly enjoy being associated with API is they continue to learn and continue to build on what Deming uh, helped us uh, try to learn. And uh, I think the work of the Institute uh, should be in that vein is, uh, is what can we actually do to keep moving forward and adding to uh, the body of knowledge. Those are the kind of things that we should be uh, talking about more. And I love history. But mm-hmm. History only gives me a foundation to move forward. Very good. Well, uh, Ron Moen and Cliff Norman, thank you for being guests on the Deming Institute podcast. Thanks, Trip. Thanks, Trip. This is Trip Babbitt informing you about the upcoming Deming and Education Conference on November 6th through the 8th, 2015, at Cedar Brook Lodge in Seattle, Washington. The Deming Institute will feature administrators, teachers, and thought leaders that are challenging the status quo in education. For more information, go to the Deming.org website and select events. We hope to see you there.